Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Chaloner, and once again, I'll be exploring a new perspective on leadership, joined each week by a different CEO, CFO, director, president, government minister, and one day perhaps even the education secretary. That's if he's still in a job by that point, of course. The aim in these interviews is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from sustainability to green mortgage eligibility, and of course, the innovation and success that makes it all worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. We will be hearing from incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett a little later on in the show. But first and foremost, I'm delighted to be joined by Matthew Fleming Duffy, Director of Specialist Independent Mortgage Broker Cherry Mortgage and Finance based in Bournemouth. A large part of our discussion will be on the issue of green mortgages, products which aim to provide homeowners with better mortgage deals for trying to improve the energy efficiency of their home. Matt, a very warm welcome to you and many thanks for joining us on the programme today. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Very glad to be talking. Likewise, it's a real pleasure having you um, on the air with us, Matt. And um, with the future of the property market uncertain in these times, many people are, of course, keen to jump on the property ladder. And recent research has revealed the extent to which the public actually understand mortgage options and also how much value we are placing on sustainability when it comes to our homes as well. Now, I understand you're quite clued up on alternative mortgage options that are out there, particularly for those who are aiming toward being environmentally friendly. But before we discuss that in a little bit more detail. What exactly has this recent research shown about public understanding of this subject matter and the extent to which sustainability is at the forefront of the minds of the consumer? It's a very good question. I mean, um, the UK mortgage market is very broad. It's very competitive. Um, There are over 100 lenders in the UK, and there are literally thousands of mortgage products. So it's um, it's a big ask to say to any consumer, go out there in the mortgage market and, and get the right product, get the right solution uh, that meets meets your needs. Um, but you're right that there, there is um, that there are large numbers of people um, that that are actively sort of you know, making efforts to help protect the environment, or indeed they've stated that they want to um, you know, take steps to help protect the environment. Indeed, in our research, we found that over 50% of people surveyed said that they were always looking to make their homes more energy efficient. Um, but there seems to be this large disconnect between the desire to have a sort of a positive impact on the planet and, and actually converting these desires into action, particularly particularly when it comes to green finance. Um, for example, um, only 16% of people who responded to our survey um, intend to apply for the government's Green Homes Grant. So, yeah, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it's this kind of marrying of the two um, aspects of home ownership, property purchase, the mortgage financing that comes along with it, and then the kind of, you know, the extra assessment that's required sometimes to work out what can I do to make my home more energy efficient and where is the funding for it. And of course, this September, we'll see the introduction of that exact scheme, the government's Green Home Grant. It offers homeowners for those tuning into this up to 5,000 in vouchers for implementing energy efficient measures into the uh, the home. And it's currently expected that over 600,000 homes in England will be able to take advantage of that math. Am I right? 
Yeah, um, that's a that's a, a government statistic um, that um, has been issued um, around yeah six hundred thousand homes. I think will will be able to take advantage of the scheme, um, but it's it's obviously going to only go so far. Um, you know, mm-hmm. not everyone's going to qualify for the scheme, um, but more importantly, um, and again, this is another sort of government stat: there are seventeen million homes in the UK with an energy performance certificate below a band C. So that just means they are not energy efficient, you know, quite simply. So again, you know, the, the grant will go a certain way to kind of helping some people, but we still got this huge, huge problem with inefficient, with old housing stock that needs to be retrofitted with energy efficient improvements. Um, green mortgages have been discussed in the UK for years, discussed mm-hmm. in the UK, um, you know, more recently with, you know, some sort of government incentives around developing green mortgage products. Um, they've been around in the US um, for, for 25 years, you know, this sort of type of financing. But um, we, we, we are yet to really see that kind of traction in the, in the mortgage market in the UK with, with green finance options. Um, you know, it's developing, you know, I, I think that this, this is key to, you know, for people to understand that certainly with the um, incentivization from the government under the, um, the green home finance Innovation Fund, which of course was launched last year and awarded this year. Um, I'm really waiting to see what Lloyd's uh, Banking Group, which is one of the uh, successful um, you know, bids for the fund, uh, I'm waiting to see what sort of green mortgage they're going to come up with. Um, you've got the Monmouthshire Building Society that are developing products now um, in a small area um, in terms of you know sort of green finance, but the market is is lacking really. Like I say again, if you think there's there's a hundred, then there's thousands of products. Um, there's only one really kind of standout product, um, in my opinion. Um, and that comes from the Saffron Building Society. Now, mm-hmm. if you were remortgaging your home or buying a home up to 80% of the value of that property, um, the Saffron has a two-year fixed rate at 1.47%. That in itself is a very, very competitive deal. But most importantly, if you improve the EPC rating for your home within six months by at least one band and to at least a band E, then that rate drops by 0.1%. That makes that deal 1.37%, which is pretty much the best two-year fixed rate mortgage on the market at 80% loan to value. But you can hear the conditions that I'm referring to here. You know, if you're not looking for two-year fixed rate or if you you have a different loan to value, Mm. then that product is not the best product for you and probably not the best product for you. Uh, There would be many, many other options. So it's, it's, it's lacking. The market is lacking with that sort of that broader brush approach with more and more products that are starting to appear, but, but too slowly. Mm. And I suppose developing a sustainable mass market solution may prove to be difficult as well without significant funding from the government as well, considering the fact that for banks and building societies, there is the risk of revenue losses there as well. Yeah, I mean, it's in my mind, it's it's not for the for the government to necessarily fund these types of products. I mean, look, you know, the, the Green Homes Grant is brilliant. Um, you know, it's limited. It's it's you know certainly going to have a, a limited appeal. Um, but look, I, I I don't think it just needs funding from the UK government. Any funding is obviously going to be you know you know gratefully received. There's no question. But I think that 
what the government really could do is just start bringing in the kind of disparate regulations and, 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 and industry bodies into a room to say, we need to galvanize thought now and, and get into, you know, get planned into action around how we can encourage the UK to be a, to be a leader in this type of finance. And there's, there's a batch of ways that we can do that. Um, I mentioned the, you know, the USA's, uh, green, mm. green mortgage modeling, um, which has been around since the mid 1990s. Um, you know, that, that's, that's something we can, you know, pretty much copy, you know, where, um, Lenders can use enhanced affordability calculations based on the fact that as consumers, you would have a reduced energy cost, um, you know, you know, if you make your home more energy efficient. Now, like I say, Monmouthshire are working on that product at the moment. Um, but again, it's one lender. Um, you know, I think that, you know, this, this again, if you bring in the, the UK, uh, regulator, the financial Commerce authority into those discussions around affordability assessments, I think that that could certainly, that could certainly help more and more lenders lenders go down that road. Um, equally, um, look, making your home more energy efficient um, isn't necessarily recognized as increasing the value of that property. Um, now, this is something where you need to be talking to surveyors, you need to be talking to estate agents, um, because there's a real sort of focus on short-termism when we look at these kind of values, and we need to be mm-hmm. looking you know, medium to long-term. Look, if your home is inefficient in terms of uh, energy, you know, um, your bills are going to go up. Um, what kind of measures as a country are we going to start selling in the future around penalising properties, for example, that aren't energy efficient? Um, these these are the questions are going to be asked more and more as time goes on, as energy bills go up. Um, and I think that is going to have a very direct impact on 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 property prices. So to kind of engage with like I say, surveyors and estate agents to say, look, we, we need to start having this discussion. You know, the Energy Performance Certificate, this EPC, does something to say, here is your rating. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't do anything more than that. You know, it sort of says, this is where your house, your property is right now in terms of energy efficient, and this is what it could be if you spend money. But there isn't then this kind of, you know, this related uplift in property values for the future, um, which I think, like I say, I think we should really sort of form into those conversations. Um, thirdly, um, and I think, I think most importantly, um, there are capital requirements that, that mortgage lenders have, have got to fulfill when, when they lend, when they provide us as consumers, when they provide us with mortgages, they have to have money set aside. Um, this is a this is a good thing, you know. This has obviously come out come about following the credit crunch, um, which is over a decade ago, where you know, look, you know, banks weren't shoring themselves up in case of problems. So banks now, if for example, they're, they're lending you a pound on a low risk mortgage, they would have to set aside thirty p in that pound, you know, in, in in a kind of a safe haven, so that if things go wrong, you know, they've got they've got their own capital reserves. Now. That um, that capital requirement increases the riskier the mortgage transaction becomes. So a higher loan to value transaction would need a larger capital requirement. Now, um, my suggestion, um, and this of course needs full engagement with the Bank of England or the Prudential Regulation Authority, which is a division of the Bank of England, to say that with green mortgages, perhaps the capital requirements uh, could be reduced. So where, for example, with a low risk mortgage, you would need to say, you know, you know, a bank would need to put away 30p in the pound. They may need to only put away 25 pence in the pound for a green mortgage. Now, that 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 I think would then lead to 
a widespread repricing of mortgages, but it enables banks to offer you know, incentives, uh, better price products for people that are trying to help um, you know, the kind of the green economy uh, that are trying to make their homes more efficient and, of course, are contributing towards the government getting closer to its net zero emissions target, which is a very ambitious target, by the way. Um, mm. So I think that, you know, if you, if you start sort of folding in those three mechanisms to regulatory discussions, I think what you'll find naturally then is that you have a far broader range of, of green finance products, green mortgages that are open to you know, many, if not all people that are seeking to, to, you know, to go for mortgage. In other words, if I buy a property, I can either take, uh, you know, go to whoever, Barclays, Halifax, you know, you know whichever bank you, you know, lender you choose, and I can either have their standard products or if I'm going to commit to make energy, um, you know, uh, the efficiency measures, um, you know, to my property, then I would naturally get, you know, some sort of you know, better priced rates, you know, with all products. Um, that in itself, as a model, loosely follows what Barclays are doing at the moment, but it only applies to new build homes. And in my mind, new build homes are not the problem. You know, it's, it's the it's the older housing stock that's the problem. And the UK mm. has got more than its fair share of wonderful, glorious older buildings, but of course, they're just not energy efficient. And that's, of course, something which um, is certainly on the agenda to uh, hopefully be uh, resolved um, in future, you'd hope. Um, you're absolutely right um, in saying that the UK became the first of the uh, the G7 nations to set itself that ambitious goal of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. And indeed, as part of that wider commitment, the government announced its green finance strategy back in July of last year and committed a £5 million fund to help the finance sector develop products such as green mortgages. But as you've said already, progress on the creation of such products is very slow. There's been little take up by British mortgage lenders. But do we think that this green mortgage fund is going to have any significant impact on mortgage lending and consumer behaviour, considering everything that's gone on since last year with the new focus on sustainability through COVID-19? Um, in, in short, no. You know, I, I think it, look, any step is is positive. I, I don't want to sort of, I don't want to bash it. That's not that's not in my personality. Um, but it, it was a, a very very small incentive for a very small number of providers to consider, you know, um, developing products. Now, um, I, you know, I said to you, Lloyd's, uh, one of the winners of, of you know of that of, of that fund, the Monmouthshire Building Society, um, uh, were another, um, and then a new firm um, called Home Infrastructure Technology, I think, something like that. Um, you know, where they're going to create a mechanism, not you know, not dissimilar to something like the Help to Buy scheme, um, where you can go to a central hub to find information. Um, you know, to link you up with, with builders and finance providers and th- sort of things like that. Now, um, that, that is, that's my understanding of it. But of course, you know, the information um, on how to kind of make your home more energy efficient is already there. The government's created, uh, or the Department for Bays or Business Energy Industrial Strategy has already mm. um, produced a website called Simple Energy Advice. That's great. I, I urge people to go and have a, have a look at that website. Um, they're developing and encouraging people to register for, trades people to register for the Trustmark, um, which of course is where they are setting industry standards um, for, for, for builders, for tradespeople, 
uh, to be registered to, to offer green home improvements. But going back to, to, to this, um, you know, this, this innovation fund, but, um, it, it was, it was good to start talking around these kinds of products. But, um, look, Saffron, for example, did not win uh, I don't know if they put a bid in even, but they certainly didn't win, uh, you know, any of the government funding. But they have produced a product, this retrofit mortgage product, um, that is absolutely market leading. So they could, they did that without the without the sort of government um, incentivization for research on that product. Excuse me, product. So if they can do it, um, in my mind, other lenders should be doing it as well. Um, there are, you know, some products that are out there. I mean, nationwide and new rebuilding societies, you know, for example, are both offering, um, you know, good deals uh, for their existing customers when they want to borrow more money. Uh, if they want to increase their current mortgage and the additional borrowing goes on a new deal, um, you know, you know, with, with those particular lenders. But, you know, again, very, very limited um, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, the, the sort of broad the marketplace. Um, we, we need this traction. We need this galvanization of different regulatory principles to say we need to encourage the market to go in a certain direction. You know, the, the, I think there's never been a better time um, you know, for us to react to this in, in the in the UK, but certainly you know internationally, um, I, I think that we'll find that the public is is far more supportive of a, of a kind of a green recovery. Um, mm. Again, you know, if I go back to our research, um, a, a, we had a, 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 almost a third of people that responded say that this, this coronavirus pandemic has made them think more about their carbon footprint. Now, those things that you think are unrelated. What's my carbon footprint got to do with, you know, a, a viral outbreak, you know, a, a pandemic? So people are starting to think more holistically about where, you know, where, where are we in, in, in the planet, you know, in, in this evolutionary you know, kind of role that we have as human beings on planet Earth? You know, what's my relationship with our development as a species? And what should we be doing as a whole to make sure that the future is protected for future generations? You know, I mean, all of this... Um, in my mind, and, 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 you know, please, you know, set my apologies for, for kind of releasing my inner hippie with this, but, you know, this is all about, you know, sort of being, you know, being that change that you want to see, you know, and having a positive impact on our planet, you know, and they, those are kind of overused, you know, very soft phrases now, but it is. And I think people are, are very open to the idea of, you know, what can we do? What can we do as, as a society, as a country? How can the government help encourage banks and building societies to produce products to help me as a consumer start doing the right thing? You know, it's, um, we, we've, I wouldn't say we're going through an existential crisis necessarily, but certainly it feels that way for a lot of people who have just taken stock and said, what's important? You know, um, I had a, you know, a, you know, a, a, you know, some some very very nice country walks with, with my sons um, at the point of the, uh, you know, of lockdown. Um, we had more time to go for walks down the river um, and just just play with the kids, you know, and things like that. Um, people are, are talking about moving out of cities. I think um, if you look at um, right move data, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the, the website, property website, um, they had a huge huge number um, of, of hits. Um, at a certain point when the kind of stamp duty holiday uh, was announced a little, mm. little while ago. But um, interestingly, they said that there has been a huge shift in terms of what people are looking for when they're looking to buy homes. And there were far more searches from people looking to buy homes 
in the countryside or by the seaside rather than looking to buy uh, in in cities and, and you know sort of moving into a city to work you know to have to be close to your place of work now has become less important very very quickly for a huge huge number of people so all of this is sort of feeding into this psyche the national psyche of what's important and what's it all about you know <laughs> and I suppose with it being a new product there is just that air of unfamiliarity as well which may be hampering the uptake of such products uh, because while 83% of people don't actually know what a green mortgage in itself is there is room for misconceptions surrounding green mortgages which can damage the uptake yes yeah absolutely and um, we, we had um, some 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 quite funny results really from our research we had um, I think 7% of people saying that they thought a, a green mortgage uh, was for a home that had a green door uh, and, and even 4% said that green mortgages are only for vegans um, but, but, you know <laughs> um, I, I mean look, ultimately there is no um, you know sort of formal definition of a green mortgage um, so you know, you know, we're dealing with that. I think you know as a sort of start point, but ultimately, if we go back to basics and the things that you know we should be talking about, and what the EU is talking about, and what the US has been talking about for for 25 years, is this retrofit. You know, this kind of taking a home that needs to be made um, more efficient. Um, in terms of energy, it needs to be insulated. You know, you need to talk about low low carbon heating. It needs to be draft proof. You know, all, all these kind of things. You know, these are the measures that we need to be talking about with our older housing stock because we've got some of the largest you know, older housing stock in the whole of Europe. So, um, you know, this is this is where green mortgages come in, and I think this is what we should be clearer about with our definition of what a green mortgage is. I don't think it should, should apply to new build homes. You know, like I say, you know, th- these aren't the problem. But, but hey, you know, in the broader context of where the mortgage market is, why not? You know, if you're encouraging builders, uh, you know, to, to build homes um, that are energy efficient, why not then reward, you know, the consumer to, you know, in, the, in the purchase of that property that they should get green mortgage discounts too. So I think that the retrofit should be the key focus with this, that, mm-hmm. you know, a green mortgage... Um, as, as, you know, we, I think we need to sort of make that definition that a green mortgage really relates to making your home or buying a, you know, uh, you know, a home that is already energy efficient. And for those that are make, looking to make a positive change by perhaps considering getting a green mortgage, what influence can such a product actually have on the environment? And it's a good question. I mean, look, you know, these are small steps, you know, for individual consumers. Um, and, you know, but like you said, you know, and again, here comes this in a hippie again. This is really about sort of being the change that you want to see. You know, mm. you know, there's, there are there are 17 million homes in the UK that have, uh, you know, an EPC below a band C. In other words, they are poorly insulated and have inefficient heating and hot water systems, you know. Um you know, with, with green mortgages, banks and building societies can incentivize us as consumers to play our part in making our homes more energy efficient, which which will, of course, reduce our energy bills, um, along with, with sort of tackling the sort of broader issue of greenhouse gas emissions in the UK. Um, and like I say, going back to my, one of my earlier points, you know, in the longer term, it may have a, a significant impact on property prices as, as energy becomes more and more expensive. So, yeah, it, it, it's certainly small steps at the moment, but it's it steps in the right direction. You know, it's, it's, it's positive steps. 
And for listeners who may be tuning into this, who may be considering getting a green mortgage, what would you say they should be looking out for? Um, I guess you'd say I would say this, but it, it, it's probably worth speaking with a good broker. Um, as many of these sort of new products that are appearing in the market are coming from smaller building societies, I mean, such as the, the Saffron Building Society, um, always, 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 it's really important to get the right advice when you try looking for mortgage. Uh, the internet, you know, in many ways is a blessing and as a curse, as we know, you know, you know, there's lots of great information out there. Um, but, you know, lots of, lots of misinformation, or indeed you can interpret things uh, inappropriately. So if you're looking for a green mortgage, you know, I, you know, Start with Google for sure, um, you know, but, but go off and, and try and find, um, you know, an intermediary, a, a broker that can help you and, and guide you possibly in the right direction with that. Mm. And how is Cherry Mortgage and Finance actually contributing towards sustainability in the sector to date? Because I understand as of January, you were offering your own version of a green mortgage, essentially, weren't you? Yeah, well, we, 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 you know, yes, we've been doing it for, for quite a while. Um, I mean, look, we're, we're a small firm, um, so it may be easier for us than for larger firms, but we're pretty much carbon neutral. Um, and we work with a, with a firm called uh, Carbon Footprint. And for every mortgage that we arrange, uh, we are planting a tree in the UK and we're offsetting uh, one tonne of CO2. So, yeah, we, we're, we're doing our bit. <laughs> and we've been doing it for um, over a year now. Um, so, yeah, we, we're we're fighting the good fight. And since part of the reason we're here as well is to discuss these issues within the context of leadership, um, what did it take from yourselves to sort of get that scheme off the uh, the ground? Well, like I say, we're, we're, a, we're a small firm. Um, I think I was just sort of getting, you know, we were getting frustrated with the, with the lack of, of green mortgage products available. Um, we wanted to start encouraging people, you know, to start looking for this type of finance. Um, but of course, you know, where the products just aren't there, we had to sort of, we felt we wanted to fill that gap to say, look, we want to do something. We want to be involved in this, this step change towards a greener future, towards a more sustainable future. So it was a, a relatively simple process for us to go through to start looking at what we could do as a firm to to help the UK, you know, move towards it, you know, um, you know, it, its greenhouse gas emissions targets, but but equally just to you know kind of be a positive positive force to maybe have a sort of positive influence on the market. So yeah, it was a, it was a simple uh, step for us to make, undoubtedly harder for, for larger firms. Um, you know, we're we're we're, we're diddy but, you know, by comparison to the big corporates, but it's something I think they could engage with. You know, I don't see why, um, you know, it's not an expensive mechanism. Uh, it's certainly something that I think, uh, you know, big corporates um, do engage with on a certain level. And like I said, our commitment was is literally for every mortgage that, that we arrange, we're, we're, we're taking these measures. So I don't know, maybe 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 some of the banks copy what we're doing. That, that you know, we'd be mm. more than happy with that. I suppose a slightly separate issue as well, again, relating to a lack of clarity uh, for consumers who are looking to improve their homes is the fact that those that have good intentions to be sustainable, perhaps aren't clued in, um, won't know what the best solutions are for their property in a practical sense. So they won't know whether solar PV panels coming in will be um, a good idea. Ground source heat pumps, for example, biomass secondary Mm -hmm. heating. So there needs to be places where they can go to source that information as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this, um, I mean, uh, you, you know, the, the government website, Simple Energy Advice, is a great is a great place to start, you know, um, 
you know, you can go through a process of starting to understand, um, you know, what we can do as consumers, what energy measures, you know, we could um, install ourselves. We're, we're working um, with, a, with a local firm. Um, um, in that we're, uh, you know, working with a, well, they're an energy consultancy firm. Um, they go through a process, um, of assessing, um, a property, you know, uh, you know, you're running an EPC, uh, looking at the measures that could be installed to make the property more energy efficient. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of trusted trader, the kind of trust mark that's been offered by the government. These are great places to start, to start going through this process of working out what you could do. But you're right. I mean, you know, you you start drifting in um, to energy efficient measures, and you you mm. just get lost. You know, as a consumer, there are so many different options, so many things to consider, um, and you know, yeah, some things may not stand the test of time. You know, it's um it's a real tricky one. I mean, you know, we've we've had the, this idea of you know solar solar roof tiles. You know, Elon Musk's firm. Uh, producing solar roof tiles, you know, yeah, I'm waiting to see those appear. You know, to see what you see what what they're going to look like in terms of costing, um, and and how how better how much better they are than, than the kind of solar cells on the roof. But yeah, th- there are absolutely um, so many options that you need to consider as a consumer, um, and it is very difficult getting to that you know that that kind of right place. But like I say, you know, the government website. Yeah, you know, simple energy advice is, is absolutely fine for starting that process. But there's, you know, the Energy Savings Trust, um, you know, amongst others. You know, there's other places you you can go for sure. Mm. It's a staggering statistic as well, isn't it? That four percent of those who sought help from mortgage advisors um, were advised about green mortgage products, according to um, your research. So there's further ignorance there within the market, and until that statistic improves, of course, we're not going to see the uptake in this that we're looking for. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, you know, the, the products aren't there. Broadly speaking, the products aren't there, so consumers aren't asking about them, and therefore, you know, mortgage mortgage brokers, intermediaries, advisors generally are not then talking about green mortgages because, like I say, unless you're looking at you go back to the saffron product um, as intermediaries. We've got a duty of care. We've got a duty to you know provide a consumer with the best mortgage product that, that kind of meets their needs. Um, you know, and that you know, ultimately comes down to price most of the time. You know, so um, unless you're looking at an eighty percent loan to value remortgage and you're looking for a two year fixed rate where the saffron product would come up, um, you know, and, and, and you know, in the sort of realms of the conversation um, around that kind of product, it would be disclosed. That of course, there's an incentive to make your home more energy efficient. Um, outside of that, you know, look, you know, you'll be just sorely as a consumer looking to borrow money, X amount, whatever that figure is, and just getting the best deal that you can. Um, interestingly, um, we actually found um, within our research, um, I'm just going to you know, refer back to this now. Um, Twenty twenty odd percent of people said that they would even pay a higher interest rate. They'd be happy to pay um, a higher interest rate uh, for their mortgage um, if they knew that this was an eco-friendly mortgage, if you like. So they're working with a firm that, that's, that's been good to the environment. Um, so, you know, from, from a consumer perspective, um, people are more open to paying you know, a premium, if you like, for green finance. But I don't think that's the way we should go uh, from a governmental perspective. We need to be focused on getting consumers the, the, the kind of the best deals. Um, like I say, you know, as, a, as an intermediary, we've got an absolute duty of care to find the best price deal for that consumer. So, 
yeah, you know, I, I'm not surprised that the conversation isn't really being had around, you know, green finance as an option because, you know, broadly speaking, you know, uh, you know, unless you're in that eighty percent, you know, that that sweet spot of eighty percent, then there'll mm-hmm. be there'll be a, a whole batch of other mortgage products that will be far more competitive for most people. Mm, completely understand where you're coming from from that point of view. Um, before we do um, come to a close on the uh, the program today, uh, Matt, given the unprecedented challenge that we have all been facing over the last few months with the COVID-19 outbreak that we've mentioned already, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how Cherry Mortgage and Finance has fared over this period, because it's been a real testing time for all of us. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly at the, 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 sort of the, the point of lockdown, um, we went very, very quiet. There was this initial kind of response that we gave to to our clients where we had mortgage applications already submitted. So in the pipeline, um, just trying to sort of manage expectations that things can't really be processed. Um, you know, so we went very quiet, you know, the, you know, the, the phone wasn't ringing very much. I wasn't getting many emails. Um, like I said, from a personal perspective, it was, it was quite nice to sort of go out and have, you know, you know, you know nice long country walks um, with my boys, you know, walking along the river near here, sort of things like that. Um, I grew up in the seventies, you know, it was very much like being in the seventies, you know, you stepped mm-hmm. outside, you didn't hear cars, you didn't really see aircraft you know, flying above. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was odd, wasn't it? I think we all, you know, sort of, you know, felt that kind of sense that things were just very different and very odd. Um, the moment the kind of lockdown um, easing started to sort of come in, come into force, so, you know, all the easing measures, you know, um, you know, sort of came into interaction. Um, we started to see things picking up. First of all, people that had the pipeline, you know, of their mortgage applications, you know, um, you know, being processed, started saying, "Great, I've heard lockdown's gone. You know, you know, when can I get my mortgage agreed? When can I get my offer?" And of course, again, we had to sort of go through this process of saying, "Well, yeah, but hold on. You know, of course, banks have still got lenders have still got furloughed staff." Um, you know, they're working under safe working conditions. So people are working from home, so that makes things very slow. And of course, surveyors, um, it took a while to kind of get to the point where they were clear about how they could go and physically value a property, you know, get a, get a, get a survey completed again under the sort of safe working conditions. And there was a huge backlog. Um, so, you know, things started to pick up, um, you know, you know, you know, through, through, uh, the kind of easing of the lockdown. And then, of course, along came this stamp duty holiday and we've seen an explosion um, you know in inquiries um, and people wanting to proceed with, a, with with buying somewhere you've got this then this kind of mix haven't you of people that have been in lockdown you know for a couple of months and have now realised that we need a bigger garden or we need a garden or we need another mm-hmm. bedroom or um, you know some people have decided to go their separate ways in lockdown you know right? I had an inquiry from um, a, a, a chap actually is quite quite amusing, um, a funny guy actually. But um, he, of course, he's been living in lockdown with his mum and dad, and decided, you know, sort of just got to get out. I need to go and buy my own place now. It's, it's okay in normal times, you know, you know, living at home with mum and dad, but now I need to get out, you know, I need, you know, and, and buy my own place. So there's this sort of pent up desire, pent up you know, demand, if you like, you know, you know, to to to, to think about moving, and then of course you incentivise, um, you know, that that kind of that moving that purchase of a, a bigger better uh, or first property um, so we've we've now become very very busy um, with mortgage applications I spoke to a um, 
a solicitor um, just the other day who said that they thought they were around two or three times the volume of inquiries or, or you know cases that they had at this time last year. So their, their business volumes are up. But of course, we still have to temper that with the fact that, as, as, as they said, they've only got 60% of their staff working at the moment. So, you know, it, it's, um, it's a tricky market at the moment. There's a lot of, a lot of activity, but of course, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the kind of managing expectations at the moment is a big part of my role. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, it's, um, it certainly is very, very busy now. And would you say that there is anything that this experience of having to adjust to a new reality has taught you in your capacity as director? I I think um, the ability to adapt has been has been very important. Um, you know, look, we're we're small. We we can change. We can adapt. We adapted very very quickly. Um, you know, to kind of all working from home. Technology has come on leaps and bounds. Um, we were lucky to already have a VoIP system. You know, voice over internet protocol where we you know we make telephone calls via the internet. So. You know, our um, people that you know, we work with all, all able to sort of work from home. Of course, we've engaged with things like Zoom and Teams and, and had more Skype and WhatsApp calls. Um, you know, so I think it's just the ability to adapt. Um, but I think the, the world has adapted. You know, I think that, you know, humans have adapted very, very rapidly to, to, to this idea of change in that. I really don't think we can go back to the way things were. Um, you know, in many, many ways, the coronavirus, you know, the, you know, the scientists are still, you know, learning about coronavirus and, and, you know, how much immunity we can, we can you know, create as humans, whether it's vaccine, it can be effective, what comes next. Um, this is now about discussions around the future, um, you know, how are we going to operate as humans and, you know, getting back to this idea, um, of us as a small firm, it was very easy for us to, like I say, just you know, switch operations to working from home. Um, lots of businesses, big businesses, uh, are finding that they can do the same thing. Um, you know, and and like I say, you know, you know, you know, when I first sort of started working, if anyone said that they were going to be you know working from home, um, it was normally on a, a kind of Friday or Friday afternoon, and it was followed by a nod and a wink. You know, um, you know, people sort of saying that they're working from home, but the ability to work from home these days um, is so much easier. It's, it's very practical. You don't need to get in your car. You don't need to go through that rat race. You know, you haven't got to you know, fight traffic or, you know, squeeze yourself on the tube or on the bus, you know, to, to get to your place of work. You really can do your work from home. And I think we've, we've embraced that. The human race has embraced that so much more so quick, quickly because we've had to. So I think that, you know, we have adapted, um, you know, very quickly as a small firm, but you know, a lot of the big firms are doing the same thing. I keep seeing articles around um, these bigger firms. Uh, I think there's an article on BBC today even that said that, you know, there's a, there's a large number of big corporates that still aren't putting plans in place to get everybody back into the workplace. Is it needed going forward? It's certainly going to be interesting, isn't it, to see just how the workplace is looking and has changed by the end of the decade. Of course, this yeah. new decade has started very much with a bang, I think it's fair to say. And the office has changed, not just, of course, between, of course, now and the beginning of the uh, the year, but also over the last 10 years as well. So it's going to be very interesting to see just how much it can still change over the uh, the coming years. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the programme uh, today, uh, Matthew, um, if we think slightly shorter term, 
what is next for you and for Cherry Mortgage and Finance over the course of the next year, particularly as we adjust to the challenges of the new normal that we're going to have to live under? Yeah, um, I, I think at the moment the, the key um, for us is to, is to see what happens um, once the stamp duty holiday passes. Um, you know, there are countless newspaper articles and journalists that are, that are sort of discussing the recession um, as a shock. You know that this is that this is a really bad place for us to be in, and of course it is if you look at history and economics in that respect. Um, you know, look, this recession was to be expected. You know, unemployment, sadly, is we're going to see a spike in unemployment. But all of the, you know, the kind of, well, the Bank of England economists are sort of talking, talking about this V-shaped or U-shaped recession. Um, so on the basis that the stamp duty holiday has incentivized people to move now, um, when that stamp duty holiday you know, finishes at the end of March next year, um, I would hope that, you know, we've seen um, you know, the kind of the, the back end of a problem, if you like, with this recession, and that we're starting to see things move into some form of economic recovery. So that the bad news isn't all that we're seeing in the newspapers, and that there are green shoots, or you know, corporates that have adapted and are, are turning turning themselves into profitable making enterprises again. And off the back of that, you would hope that then April, May, June of next year. Uh, we don't see a massive drop off um, of, of sort of property transactions, which of course is something that we would have to deal with if it comes up. So at the moment, um, you know, thumbs up to Rishi. You know, I think his, his, a lot of his schemes have been absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, uh, you know, creative economics is is absolutely wonderful. I think we you, you, you hear about you know these sort of periods of um, creative destruction. You know, where things happen, you have to manage yourself out of those those sort of problems. And I think the UK. Government and some you know, great things in stimulating the right parts of the economy. Um, so on the basis that all these incentives work and have um, a kind of a longer-term positive impact on the economy, um, I, I'm just hoping that we can go you know, past, like I say, you know, the, the kind of stamp duty holiday uh, into the next year and, and maintain the kind of business levels that we've got currently. So, yeah. <laughs> And let's keep our fingers crossed that that's certainly going to be uh, the case going forward from here. Um, Matt, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure and also an incredibly enlightening experience having you join us on the uh, the programme today. And I actually think it would be fantastic for the listeners to perhaps welcome you back onto the show in a few months' time, when not only will the impact of this current pandemic situation be somewhat clearer, but also the Green Home Grant scheme will be up and running and we can better assess the effect that that's going to have. I'll be more than happy to have a chat, Scott. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks ever so much for your time today, Matt. And do take care and do stay safe with all still going on. Great stuff. Take care. Cheers. That was Matthew Fleming Duffy speaking, Director of Cherry Mortgage and Finance. I hope that you all enjoyed the interview. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much, it's very good to be with you. 
Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of... um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. As always, it has been a pleasure listening to and learning from our guests. I have been your host, Scott Chaloner, and I hope that you all enjoyed listening. Until next time, I'll be occupying my usual corner in the Westminster Arms and raising a socially distanced glass to leadership and raising standards. Please look after yourselves and consider others in your daily activities because it does make a real difference in saving lives at this unprecedented time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find every episode on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. The views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own. They do not represent the opinions of the Parliamentary Review, Westminster Publications, Lord Pickles, Lord Blunkett, David Curry, or any other guest on the podcast. If you'd like to know more about the Parliamentary Review, please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk.